0: Today, we're going to look at the role of specifically elders in, in leadership. Deacons uh, follow along with a lot of the same things, though. You can equate a lot of this with deacons, and, and both uh, are, are leaders who serve. I, just, I, I make the distinction that elders are focused more on the spiritual direction and guidance, and deacons on the material serving. In fact, if you go to like the Catholic church or the Anglican church, a lot of times, and this always kind of cracked me up, but uh, seminarians become either deacons or priests. And sometimes you become a deacon first and serve and then cross over into being a priest. That the, You start out as a deacon serving before you move into being a priest and serving in more spiritual ways as far as like the Lord's Supper and And preaching and things like that. But deacons serve the church and make sure things are getting done and taken care of. Elders are more about a spiritual direction and guidance. And today we're going to be in in the book of Titus. You'll probably see a lot of things, if you'll recall from two weeks ago when we were in 1 Timothy pretty strongly, a lot of the stuff in 1 Timothy is in Titus. Timothy and Titus both had similar missions. Timothy was left in Ephesus. Titus was left in Crete. Paul wrote both to Timothy and to Titus, and to each one of them, he says, this is why I left you there. This is why I didn't keep you with me on the journey. And and to Titus, in verse 5, and we're going to look at verses 5-11 through this morning, but in Titus, verse 5, Paul said, for this reason I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So so very similar to to Timothy, except Titus is in charge of an entire island and every city he needs to go around and appoint elders. And he says in verse 6, Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused, of dissipation, or rebellion. Now, he starts at a different place with Titus, but he gets to the same gist. Uh, In 1 Timothy, a lot of the focus was, is he a one-woman man? How does he manage his own household? And in Titus, it's the same thing. He says, uh, appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So, a one-woman man. Now, does this mean that a single man can't be an elder? Does this mean a man whose wife has passed away and he is remarried can't be an elder? Does this mean that a man whose wife and he divorced and he has remarried can't be an elder? There are a lot of those kind of things, and, and again, we could go back and say, does this mean a woman can't serve in this role? Because it clearly says man. More than the, the letter of what he is saying, that, oh, okay, well, it has to be a, a, a man who has kids. I mean, you know, just, just stop and think. What if you're a man, you get married, and for whatever reasons, you and your wife are barren. You don't have kids. Does that mean, well, he hasn't been able to raise kids to teach them the faith, so therefore, he can't be an elder? What's what's Paul really getting at? He's pointing to things that he says are good markers. What is he really? Is he saying that only these kind of men can be elders, or is he focusing on the fact that that if somebody's going to be an elder, the best way to find out if they're going to be a good elder, and the best way to weed them out, first off, is to look at their home life and to say, well, let's see, is he a faithful man? Is he a husband of one woman? And I, and I take that to be. Uh, In the present, as a over the course of his life, how has he lived? How does he live? And you could say it for women too. How does she live? Is she a one woman or one man woman? It's hard to get them flipped around there. Is this person somebody who is faithful? Is this somebody who uh, forsakes all others? Is this somebody who is morally upright in their? behavior in this way you could say it the same for a single person how can a single man be a one woman man well he cannot be uh playing the field he can treat the women that are in his world and out there with dignity and respect as sisters you can see a single man and say does he act like a one woman man or does he act like a many woman man whether he is married or not we can tell what kind of character he has if we look in his life. And then he also moves on to having children who believe that the kids are not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Now, obviously, this is harder if a person doesn't have kids. But the point, the focus is, let's look at their home life. How are they raising their kids? Are they raising their kids good? Do they interact with people well? I mean, you can, it's more the focus on the home life then the specifically, do they have kids? How do they operate at home? And this is a big thing, because you, know, you can be a good business person and, and a terrible father. Sometimes it seems to be inverse. The better at business, the worse at home. Because you're giving yourself to the business, not to the home life. You can be... Uh, immoral and make money. Seems to help, actually. That doesn't mean that's what works in God's house. That doesn't mean that's what works. And even if we go to Proverbs, he says you can do that for a while. You can run on and you can do it for a while, but sooner or later it's going to catch up. Sooner or later God's going to get you. He will not reward it. The point here is that, that for specifically for the church, church leaders are proven first at home. That, that what we should be looking for in our leaders, and especially in elders, are those who manage their households, their homes well, and treat and live as one woman men. That they are faithful in their conduct, that they are proper in their conduct, whether they're married or not, that their attitude is one of faithfulness. That they have raised kids, and, and here you can always kind of find out if, uh, how things are going on at home by how the kids behave. Kids have a way of getting out of control if you try too much. How do they behave? Are they accused of dissipation? Are they accused of rebellion? Do those kids believe? Is he able to even teach his own kids the basics of the faith? Now, there are times where children just become disobedient and run off. You know, just because a a person had a kid who, that kid's an agent of their own. As they become a teenager, as they become an adult, they can make their own decisions and they can go crazy if they want to. Does that mean that as soon as somebody had a kid that decided to go a different direction, maybe they were in rebellion for a few years, maybe for the rest of their lives? Does that mean we go to them and say, no, I'm sorry, you, you failed? We're going to have to ask you to step down from leadership? It's not so much the letter, I don't think, as the quality, the character behind. We can look and say, well, is this person teaching his children the right way? Did, did he do everything he could? Or are they a harsh taskmaster and they uh, cause their kids to be uh, frustrated And that's why this happened. The point is to look at the qualities and the character of the person that would be a leader in how they live at home, how they live in their personal life before we put them in charge of the house of God. Do they manage their own house well? Because because that's what it is. In in verse 7, Paul continues. He says, "For So, you know, The reason why I said all this about being a one-woman man and having children who believe and they're not accused of dissipation or rebellion, the reason for this is the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. The, the, The overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. A steward is generally a slave in the household who is in charge of the household. They are not the child, they are not the son, they are not the the heir. They are often, in, in Paul's time, a slave, but entrusted with the running of the house to make sure things are taken care of. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is talking about when he comes back and he says, who is the good and faithful slave who the master has put in charge of his house to make sure that his servants are fed at the proper time? How good is it for him? Blessed is he when his master shows up and he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. But woe on that servant if when the master shows up, he's decided, ah, my master is going to be gone for a long time. I'm going I'm to treat people how I like. A steward is not owning what they are the steward of. Just like we have the parable of the unrighteous steward. And the master said, you've, you've squandered my wealth. Unfortunately, I think we've got quite a few pastors in the world today who, being told they can't be the pastor of a church anymore, they say, well, what will I do? I'm too proud to beg. I don't want to work hard. I know what I'll do. And it's amazing within six months how many pastors who, who have had to resign because of moral failure find themselves forgiven and restored and opening up another church in another city. And they've not learned a thing. And there are people who are willing to go with them. It's amazing. we got a lot of that. They're stewards and they don't own it themselves. That The, the overseer, and, and so an elder overseer, the overseer is the work of being a guardian, of protecting and guiding. Elder is more of a title. The overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. And we see this in in Acts chapter 20, a, a great passage where Paul is talking to the elders of the church of Ephesus as he is headed back to Jerusalem. And he tells them in verse 28, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So he's talking to the elders. He's called the elders to him, but he says the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And then he says, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And right there in one verse, we get a great Trinitarian view. The Holy Spirit has called you, has made you overseers. It's the church of God, and he purchased it with his own blood. Jesus isn't mentioned by name, but Jesus is there because he is the one who bled. This is God's church. The Holy Spirit is called and gifted. It is God the Father's church, and it was purchased by God the Son's blood. It is His, not ours. If there's one thing we need to remember, and, and, and leaders in the church need to remember, the church is God's. Leaders manage for a time. To be a steward, I mean, you think we go on, you know, I guess now it's flight attendance, but when I was growing up, you had stewardesses, right, on the airplane, and you showed up, and they told you when you could get up and when you could sit down, when you, and they brought you your drinks, and they provided for you so you didn't have to go to the galley and get your own drink. They were stewards for a period of time. As soon as I got off that plane, I'd have to get myself a drink. They weren't going to bring it to me. For a period of time, I have somebody to serve me. But after that, I'm on my own again. And the same is true in the church. That for a period of time, we have people who are put in position of overseeing. But we need to remember the church isn't theirs. It doesn't matter if they were the founding pastor and they've been there for 20 years. If it's a real church, it's not their church. It's God's. And the work that they have done, if we say, well, they've done the work, Maybe we're being honest and true because if they did the work and it's their church, then that means God isn't there and God didn't do the work. Even if they are the ones that started it and they are the ones that do the primary work in ministry, we've got to remember if it's the church, it's not theirs. Those are people that were bought with Jesus' blood, not ours. Paul says that very clearly. (laughs) Who did I die for? You're not baptized into my name, are you? No. You're not baptized into Paulus' name, are you? No. Jesus died for us. We're baptized into His name. It's His church. We're just stewards. We're just household managers. Slaves. Put into a position of authority. Just like uh, Joseph in Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife comes to him. And he says, look, your husband has put me in charge of everything of his house. Everything is under my control except you. I'm not going to betray that trust. We need lo- we need leaders today who aren't going to betray that trust. Who are going to say, no, this isn't mine, this is God's. It's not mine to do with what I please. It's not mine to, to seek my own desires. It is gods and that's exactly what paul gets into in the very next well in that verse i never finished 7 did i uh, for the overseer must be above reproach as god's steward not self-willed literally seeking one's own pleasure not seeking their own desires not self-willed not quick-tempered not addicted to wine not pugnacious to, to be a fighter. you know that, that, that their, That's their first reaction is let's, let's get it on. Not fond of sordid gain. Not looking to make money. And that's a very negative, so now we move into verse 8, which gets very, a little bit more on the positive sides and proactive. But hospitable. Welcoming other people in. Loving what is good. Sensible, which means sober-minded. Just or righteous. When when, uh, Joseph was called a righteous man, he would have fit this bill. Just, devout or holy. Self-controlled. Self-controlled, which is the exact opposite of self-willed. The first one is seeking one's own pleasure. The second one is controlling the self. And, and why do we need to control ourselves? Don't we generally need to control ourselves from seeking our own pleasure? I always, always loved Tom Beeman Sr. He, he's, he said he's, how did he put it? He's got these muscles where he can, he says, I work out. And all he meant was I push away from the table. I stop eating after a while. I push back. I got, I got table weights, you know. he push back. Like, man. I need to work on those muscles, you know? Self-controlled, not self-willed. I think this isn't just for the church. This is for everything. Uh, But proper leaders seek to serve others. That's what Paul's getting at. He says, the type of person we're looking for as a leader and the type of person, if you want to lead others that you should aspire to be, is somebody who who does not seek their own self-pleasure in a thing. And this is tough because as we come together as a church, almost everybody's got their own idea of what they want to see happen and their desire of what will fit for them. And it can be difficult when everybody is coming together saying, well, this is what I want, to say, okay, it's not about what I want. First off, what does God want? Where is God leading? But secondly, to seek the welfare and the benefit of others. This is what they want. I mean, if people are saying if a church comes together and they are wanting something that isn't wrong, isn't sin, isn't uh, failing in following God, how do we strive to serve, to provide that which they are seeking? That's a tough thing, especially when you're, you know, you're dealing with people and, and maybe you deal with this in your own personal life, where you've got somebody and they are selfish and they're always looking after their own desires. And then you go to Philippians where Paul tells us not to, not to, not to pursue our own desires, but to consider the other person as more important than ourselves. You get in a situation like that, you can spend the rest of your life giving somebody else what they want because if they're not going to consider you as more important than themselves, they're going to keep taking advantage of you. And so we recoil from that. And we say, we don't like that. We don't want to go there. But, but Paul never says, unless they're really selfish, then you can be a little selfish too. He just says, no. Look to the needs of the other. Consider them as more important than yourself. And he doesn't ever say when to quit. Because we're supposed to trust God for that other half. We're supposed to trust God for what happens for us. And that's why leaders seek to serve others even when those others don't seek to serve anyone. That's why it's a little bit of an extra call to leadership. Because leaders have to be the ones that say, okay, it's not my will. Even if I'm dealing with willful people, and they're all pressing their will and their desire? Okay, it's not my will. What is God's will? What is their will? How do we fulfill that? That's a tough thing to do, but that's what Paul's calling on them. Because the the, the opposite is so much worse. If you have a self-willed leader where they are just seeking their own desires and their own ways, they can create havoc and destruction. And we've seen that. We see it in churches in the, in the country around us. We see it in business. We can see where, where certain people, they just destroy things because their will. I'm going to have it this way. I'm going to make it this way. That's not, that's not the church. That's not the way we should be as leaders. And I'd say we've even seen that in our own, in our own ranks probably from time to time. Paul moves on. Notice in in verse 8, it wasn't a period. So they need to be loving what is good. They need to be sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. And then the final thing, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. So that he will be able to both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So so. Uh, good, sound teaching that is able to first exhort, but also to uh, refute those who contradict. So, So building up, not tearing down, but when you run up against somebody who has wrong teaching, who has wrong ideas, to be able to refute them, and that word has the idea of restoring and correcting and bringing them back in. Remember in First Timothy, one of the reasons that Paul left Timothy in Ephesus was because he had to deal with some false teaching. And First Timothy, most of that book is really about dealing with these false teachers that are in the church. Titus has the same problem. Paul says in verse 10, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So he even calls out a group. Those of, of the, the Jewish sect are those who think you've got to be circumcised if you're going to become a Christian. The, those that are trying to, to combine some legalism in with the grace of the Gospel. Especially those who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. There's that You remember back in verse 7, not fond of sordid gain, and now we see why. Because there is a group of people who are teaching, and they're saying things they should not teach, and they're upsetting whole families, and they're doing it for the sake of sordid gain. They're trying to destroy for unprofitable and, and not righteous money and gain. Now as I, uh, as I read that and I think about it, I go back to Acts chapter 20. Paul had called the elders of Ephesus together and remember he, he told them to be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you Not sparing the flock. Not literal wolves, but people who will act as if wolves to to eat and destroy the flock, the church of God. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Now whether he means among yourselves, as in those of you at Ephesus... Or if he means, I'm looking at people today. I don't know which ones of you it is, but some of you even will rise up and teach things that are perverse so that you can draw away some of the disciples to yourself. That's why they need to be on guard, not just for the flock, but for themselves first thing the, the leader needs to do is make sure that they don't go astray in their own heart. They have to be on guard for themselves that they don't go astray and then lead others astray. And, and, and as I read about that this week and as I thought about it and worked on it and I got to thinking about, you know, well, First Timothy. First Timothy was mostly about false teaching. And here, Titus, it's about predominantly false teaching. And if you start looking at what is an elder called to do? You know, it seems like an elder, a leader in the church, that a leader's primary focus is for true teaching in the church. That 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 is the, the primary work that they would be able to teach, to instruct, to exhort, and also to refute. And to make sure that no false teaching arises in the church. Now, think about churches in America today. What is the primary work that we think of as leaders in the church? I mean, maybe you say, well, they preach. Yeah, okay, the pastor preaches. But think about the the modern model of a church today. What what most churches are, are focused on trying to be or to do how much of, of what you read in, in the news or in books or blogs, wherever you get your information, you know, if you go to Christianity Today or uh, I, I've got some different websites and some different people that I, I listen to. I'm connected with Tarrant Baptist Association and they send me a, an email every week with some ideas and tips and articles and things like that overwhelmingly I would have to say I cannot remember the last time I read something designed for leaders that talked about making sure there wasn't false teaching in your church. Making sure you're not doing any false teaching. Overwhelmingly, it's about strategies. It's about trends in the community and in society. It's a, you know, right now it's all about online and in person whereas many churches used to not even be online as far as having a service posted like we do today. And you can go through an entire hour-long podcast listening to uh, respected leaders in the church, evangelical, and not hear Jesus once. You can hear experts say, You can hear a lot about, well, this is what's happening in the world today. This is what we need to do. This is what people respond to. This is what people don't respond to. Most of the time, you do hear something about Jesus. But overwhelmingly, as I think about it, and and I look at this and what Paul is talking about, what he's really worried about, what leaders and elders really need to be doing, is making sure that our, our doctrine is sound, that we teach and we are faithful and hold fast the faithful word. Don't let go of it. And remember in First Timothy when he was talking about deacons, for deacons it was the same thing, holding on to the mystery of the faith. And I got to thinking about you know, strategic leadership. And the desire when we when we formed a strategic leadership team to, to help chart a path forward and which direction do we need to go? And, I started realizing Paul doesn't worry about that. Maybe, maybe times have changed, maybe things have changed, but let's just stop for a moment and recognize that wasn't something Paul was concerned about. And if you go to the Gospels, that wasn't something Jesus was concerned about. What was Jesus concerned about? Hey, you know, the, the, the leaders, the, the people who are in charge of the Gentiles, you know that they lord it over them. But it shouldn't be that way with you. The one who is great among you will be your servant. He was more focused on are we serving one another? He was more focused on the fact that, hey, look, the, the, the harvest is plentiful, but there aren't enough workers in the harvest. So pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send more workers. And Paul, he's more focused on is the, the teaching true? Is it right? Are we we keeping the, the, the false teaching down? And as I've thought about this, I'm wondering if the false teaching hasn't just taken over in America. Because the perverse things don't have to be obviously pagan. The perverse things can be what are you counting today? How are you measuring what are the current trends in culture? These are the seven things that are going to decide how things go. These are the six trends that are going to affect churches. These, the churches, uh, this is an honest-to-goodness one I've seen multiple times. The churches that can, that can achieve or can, can uh, work on or can figure out these five things are going to be the churches that last five years from now. The churches that can't manage these things. The churches that can't figure these five things out. They're the churches that are going to disappear in the next five years. Not a word about Jesus and his church and how the gates of hell will not overcome his church. All, these are the trends. This is how the world has changed. And we, 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 we eat it up, we read it, we, we swim in it, and we live in it, and we don't realize this is false teaching. This is perverse things that are leading us not to Christ, but to those gurus with the wisdom. And these are people I respect. How much are we already following the false teaching? Because Paul's not worried about that. This is not an organization. It's not something that we've got to try to make sure our our quarter four is strong. It's a house. It's a family. It's the body of Christ come together to worship Him together, to serve one another, to be the people of God, to live, and to attract the world to Him. And the point and the primary focus of an elder in that environment, in that situation, is not to say, well, this is the ministry items we need to be doing, or this is how we need to do this or how to do that. No, it's to say, are we holding strong to the true Word of faith? Have we held fast to the same Gospel that Paul preached that Jesus lived that has brought the church through tumultuous times, many changes, but are we holding fast to the Word of God? And are we making sure we don't allow false teaching to infiltrate into our lives? That we, God forbid, we be the ones to preach it, to proclaim it, that is, that is, in Paul's view, the primary focus and purpose of an elder. I'm embarrassed to have to figure that out again. That, at times, we have focused more on strategy. How do we do things right? Well, which way should we be going? What is the plan? Because our focus is no longer just on being stewards of what God has done. It's in trying to build something for God. And that's not what he has called us to do. He's called us to be his people. And so as we think about those who would lead us, especially in spiritual leadership as elders, they need to be the type of people that we can see it in their home life how they live, and how they interact. Because that is, you know, how do you take care, if you can't take care of your own house, why should God entrust you with his house? If you can't care for your own family, why should God trust you to care for his family? So that's the proving ground. And those kind of people that we want to serve us, they need to be people who serve, who aren't seeking their own will, their own purpose. And that's a hard thing to do because everybody at some point, your ego gets involved. It's hard not to, to some degree, have your own desires, your own pleasure. It's hard to keep that false teaching out of your heart. But that's really what we've got to be focused on. That those who would lead us, above all other things, our focus doesn't need to be how do we reach this group, how do we do that, how do we create more market share. It really needs to be, are we making sure that we're holding true to the Word of God? Are we teaching the right stuff? Are we making sure that if we hear wrong teaching, we don't just kick it out, But no, we we refute, we try to turn the wrong teaching back and restore that person in faith and community. That is the work of an elder. I don't know very many churches that are actually doing that work. I pray we can try to figure out how to be one of the churches that does. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and your conviction that you give us. Lord, that we can, I confess, we can go our, our own way and, and think we're going your way. We're trying to serve you. We want to serve you. And yet, we adopt the ways of the world instead of holding true to your ways. Father, we pray. That as a church, we would desire to preach and to teach not just on Sunday mornings, but anytime we get together for a Bible study and and when we speak to one another, Lord, may we teach each other true faith. The true Word of God. We pray that You would help us to, to have sound doctrine that we can encourage one another and challenge one another. I pray, Lord, that for myself as a leader of the church, as an elder, that I would keep that forefront in my mind. And I do, I pray, Father, for Your forgiveness. I pray, Father, for the church's forgiveness for those times when I have not. And I pray, Lord, that in our midst, You would be raising up those who would serve us as elders, as leaders of the church, who would make it their priority Not because they want this as their own. No, that they would recognize we're just servants. We're just household managers. And what you've called us to do is make sure that the proper food is fed at the proper times. The Word of God, undiluted, unadulterated, true, faithful through the ages. Lord, may that be what we seek to do. We ask and pray.